Episode 88, Hair Transplants versus PRP, plus other facial plastic surgeries. I'm your host, Dr. Justin Trosclair, and today we're here Dr. Benjamin Paul's perspective. Join 2017 Podcast Awards nominated host, Dr. Justin Trosclair, as he gets a rarely seen look into the specialties of all types of doctors and guests, plus marketing, travel tips, struggles, goals, and relationship advice. Let's hear a doctor's perspective. If you could be so kind, follow me on any social media that you'd like. On the top right of my page has all the icons. And let me know what person, profession, or specialty that you would like to hear from next on the show. Appreciate it. Today on the show, I'm excited. We have not had very many surgeons, much less plastic surgeons. So today, that's what we have. Actually, in episode 90, we have another one. But today is Dr. Benjamin Paul, MD. He's a double board certified facial plastics and hair restoration. And he has a really cool story of how he ended up getting to go from ENT to plastics to actual hair, because we're going to talk all about hair transplants, how to make them look real and age appropriate. I didn't realize this, but PRP can be used to help restore some hair and figuring out the new technology versus the old, uh, how important is the harvest method Uh, We get to talk about his passion to do mission trips, to do cleft lip reconstructions and the differences between, say, how we would do it here versus in those types of countries. I think you'll be surprised by the level of detail that we go in today. And being that Dr. Paul gets worldwide clients, you really get to experience him as a person and his passion for what he does, because these surgeries are like eight hours long. And actually, this week will be the first time we ask the question, like, give us a story how either you impacted a patient's life or how like a patient's journey with you impacted your own life. So that'll be a question that we'll start to implement as we go along. So let's not wait any further. A doctorsperspective.net slash 88. Let's go. Hashtag behind the curtain. Live from China in New York City, we have a great guest today. He's double board certified in facial plastic and hair restoration. He's a surgeon, practices in Manhattan of all places. He is excellent at rhinoplasties, facelifts, eyelid surgeries, and hair restoration. And I couldn't be more excited to have this conversation with Dr. Benjamin Paul, MD. Hi, how's it going? It's going pretty good on my end. How about you? Had a great day. Excited to speak with you. Well, I just have... So many kind of questions, but I'm really, I want to see where you guide us a little bit on your answers. Because for instance, Manhattan, there's a lot of places that you could practice. That seems like a, uh, probably a good place based on what you do. Um, I have a question of when you were going down the medicine route, how did you pick this? And I'm actually going to ask this one. How did you end up picking plastics? And then I, I, would, I have a feeling that you could have gone more post-surgery, someone gets bit by a dog or they have a cancer removed on their face versus going nose, hair restoration, more cosmetic stuff. Uh, Do you do both? And then how did you decide to pick what you did pick? So I'm happy to get you to where I am today. I'll I'll start really at the beginning. I think I chose plastic surgery because I, as a young kid, realized that if you have a problem, especially facial plastics on your face. It's something that you can't hide. It's something that confronts you every day when you look in the mirror. And the opportunity to help somebody and give them relief and help them look the way that they sort of felt like they wanted to look or joy and help them look better than they thought that they could look was something that I thought was really valuable. Um, 
I grew up in Connecticut. My dad is an ophthalmologist and my mom is a dentist. So I went like right in between, you know, with the whole facial plastics thing. <laughs> so if I'm doing like a mandible fracture repair in the hospital, I'm talking to my mom about teeth. And if I'm doing an orbital floor repair, I'm talking to my dad about the eyes. And I think that uh, for me, I, I went uh, right out of college into a seven-year program, which I would totally recommend to any of the young people listening, where it was three years of undergrad, four years of medical school. I didn't have to apply to med school. I was tracked into it, and it was all at Northwestern, so I felt like I didn't forsake uh, getting a great liberal arts education or a great medical school because I felt like Northwestern was great for both. And then when I went to medical school, I was planning on becoming a general plastic surgeon, and in my third year, the where you switch from the library part of medical school to the more clinical part, I had the opportunity to do a case where we re, uh, reconstructed somebody's jaw. They had jaw cancer, and I went in with the ENT doctors, and this was an 11-hour surgery, and the ENT doctors dissected and took apart the jaw and took apart all the lymph nodes that potentially could drain the cancer in the neck, and everything was open, and their knowledge of the anatomy was spectacular. Then the plastic surgeons came in and they did the reconstruction and they looked like deer in the headlights when they walked into that room. They had to be shown around. This is the facial artery. This is the facial nerve. This is part oh of the carotid gland that we removed. And I realized that if I only want to do facial plastics, if I don't want to do any surgery below the clavicles, I don't want to do the intricate hand surgery or breasts or butt or whatever else could, you know, plastic surgeons do, and I just wanted to do face, doing ENT as a five-year commitment as my residency would give me the best foundation to be a really uh, excellent facial plastic surgeon. And then I found out that I'm not the only one thinking this way. In fact, you do five years of ENT, you can do a fellowship in facial plastic surgery and end up as this double board certified expert in your little box. And um, the ENT guys are doing surgery where it's not just about beauty, it's about function, it's about breathing and sinus surgery or voice or cochlear implants and it, to help people hear. And, and it's a wonderful, uh, for me, it was a wonderful backup concept. I figured if I get out of all of this and there aren't any jobs for plastic surgeons, I'll do something that I love doing, which is this ENT stuff. And then in the middle of ENT training, I was really targeting and honing my uh, my practice or my, my knowledge towards facial plastics, and this was over at NYU, and I kept asking everybody, and I met like 130 people who sort of did this. I said, what do you do when the hair is not perfect? Because you get somebody's face to look beautiful, and their hair isn't beautiful, and they said, oh, we'll send it to a dermatologist. There's a great ER physician in town that does beautiful hair. I was like, well, this doesn't make any sense. Like, I kept asking them, I'm like, I'm in Manhattan. If I choose to be the hair guy, would you send to me? Because I really, really think this is fascinating. The biology is interesting, the, the artistry of this, where you can create something that's truly natural appearing and no one would know that work's been done and it lasts your whole life. And I was like, if I become the man for this or the guy for this or the person, will you send? And they were like, of course. And so I started sort of driving my own path. And if you've taken apart a jaw or you've done any of these complicated procedures, then you know how to set up a procedure and you know that it's a bunch of simple steps that are linked together and perfecting each step and uh, allows you to do this beautiful operation. And so I said, if I take the same passion as a surgeon would apply to a really hard operation and I apply it to hair, I bet you I can optimize this in a way it has never been done. 
And that's been my approach. I'm blown away right now with the words you've said because we forget, I forget, you know, I think, oh, you just got to, you know, fix a nose or, and then you start looking at pictures, you start watching some videos on YouTube or on Instagram and you're like, wow, this is unreal what a surgeon has to do and be able to do it, can do. Oh, yeah. And then you've learned it all. I did in my fellow year, 429 rhinoplasties in one year. And it was unbelievable training. I'm very comfortable doing a nose. And you might say, why don't you only do noses? And it's because I, I love doing noses and I do a lot of them. I would do I do about one or two noses a week, but I also do a lot of this hair stuff because I just I love it and I find that I, I don't see anyone doing what I'm doing for it. And that's it makes me feel like I'm really giving the patient something that is very special. Um, and you know in addition you sort of talked about skin cancer reconstructions. I'm doing that as well. And I'm doing dog bites. I took care of somebody who lost part of their nose earlier this month, and um, we did a forehead flap, and it was a you know a big operation. And I actually I leave on Friday just in four days to go to Peru with a cleft team, and I'm doing cleft lip and palate surgery uh, on a medical mission trip, which is pro bono. You know, I actually pay to go to do these things, and uh, you know, help do about 30 surgeries, 35 surgeries in a week, and. It should be amazing. It's my fifth time doing that. When you do those surgeries, I think whenever my age, our age, uh, the scars were pretty big. Have they gotten to where so you can barely even tell these days? In the U.S., they're pretty good uh, because what we do is something called pre-alveolar nasal molding. or pre And so basically take um, – and a whole system is done like orthodontic to pull everything together. And when you can sew and there's less tension – the scars don't widen. When we're on a mission trip, we tell the community to do taping and try to get the cleft as small as possible before we operate. But ultimately, we're really just trying to help those kids. Yeah, that's fair. I was just thinking for like, you know, for the U.S. That's These days, they got so many procedures and, and styles. Well, all right. We'll just ignore the fact that you can pretty much reconstruct an entire face. I've, I've seen, you know, I got a friend that does like mole surgery yeah. and I've I was like, wow, the whole head is just almost completely removed, all the hair, and then they have these zigzags, and they're able to pitch it together, and you're like, wow, it, it actually looks like a human again. Oh, totally. Not just looks like a human again, there's barely any scarring. So what you do is amazing to me. Thank you. Um, but let's focus on hair, because Justin doesn't have much left. <laughs> it's been too long before he got his Rogaine on. It looks like you, there's different kinds. There's the PRP, yeah. and I know PRP for like shoulders and elbows. Yeah. I'm curious if it's the same thing. It's similar but not identical okay and then also there's the hair transplants where it looks like you have a little seed and you literally are putting thousands or hundreds of these bundles yeah so let's let's talk hair biology the hair on the top of the head is very different than the hair in the back men when they get to the last stage of hair loss maintain a horseshoe the hair in the back of the head does not respond to androgen those are the male hormones like testosterone and dihydrotestosterone and so that hair grows for life. You can take out that hair like transplanting a tree. It's not going to regrow from where you took it, but you can put it somewhere else. We can put it on somebody's eyebrow and give them an eyebrow transplant on their beard, and most popularly, you can transplant their head. Now, in the old days, they would use what's called a baker's punch, which is a dermatologic punch. It's a few millimeters in diameter, and they'd move a grouping, and that's called hair plugs. And frankly, they are um, aesthetically atrocious. <laughs> they really don't. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, they were bad. Bosnia or something. But what you do notice is they grow. And then 
the next sort of evolution in this was to take out a strip of skin and sew a line closed and then hand dissect out individual follicles. And from those, you get what's called the unit, the follicular unit, the seed from which hair grows. And they grow in groupings. You can have one or two or three or four hairs. And the single hairs are valuable because they're used as the hairline hairs. And they're not just planted like a picket fence. They're angled. And that's where the artistry comes into this. And it's not straight. It's micro and macro irregularities. And, and every single surgeon is going to do this a little different. To me, I think that one of the things that I have learned is that there are patients who truly understand that just like if you took a blank canvas to an impressionist painter, you're going to get a very different painting. When you go to a plastic surgeon, you're going for something that's not just science. There's a huge amount of art, and it's not a commodity. This next guy down the street is not going to give you the same result. It's not like removing earwax in an ENT office. It's a very specific and delicate um, procedure that reflects a certain aesthetic. And when I do this, the bigger hair units are placed behind for density, but they're not leading the hairline. And the front units are being angled and positioned in a way that looks natural. And the best guide for me is the patient's own hair. I can see how it's coming out and I can match it with these hairs from the back that are going to grow for your whole life. So let's say I have a 27-year-old who's losing their hair. I'll do the hair transplant. I'll reinforce the front hairline. They may lose their, you know, their natives and only have my transplants left behind, but they're connected from side to side with their face framed when they're 90, those hairs are still growing. And that's really a powerful investment in yourself. So whenever you're, you're looking at that, I can see how if you line it up, but then what about going backwards? Because that's a lot of real estate. And I don't know, I mean, this is the part I'm curious about. Yeah. You're talking a row of hair. So if you have to replace an inch back from the where the hairline used to be, or do you have to kind of go where, you know, bring a picture when you're 18? Or you're kind of stuck with where your hairline's at? So I, I don't want to lower you to where you were when you were 18, because when you're 90, you don't want to have hair growing in the location of an 18-year-old's hair. You want to look age-appropriate, but you want to look your best. And so I'm thinking not just a, a year down the line, I'm thinking 20 years down the line. So the way I set it up is I dense pack the front, so that way there's a visual block for the eye, and then I fade it backwards. So if they did nothing else, they're connected from side to side, but they have a bald spot. At a later time, I can transplant that bald spot too. And it's never going to be the density of an 18-year-old, but you're going to have coverage. Okay. So that's the key is to make it... So when I look at you, I can tell. Like I know sometimes like if I take a picture from the side, I'm like, oh, I don't like the side view anymore. <laughs> but on the front view, I'm like, eh, you know, it's passable. <laughs> yes. So that's the type of thing that the surgeon, for yourself even, that's the kind of things you have to consider uh, when you're doing this. A hundred percent. There's everyone comes with their own donor site. Sometimes the hairs are very thick and then you don't want to have too many of those thick hairs be the leading hairs because even though they're singles, they just look thick for the job. Um, or if it has really thin hair, you know you're going to have to pack it a little bit denser in order to get the coverage right. And then some people have a very wide, big donor site and some people are smaller. So you have to manage expectations with what's possible. So you're still doing a strip, though. Like you have to remove a strip somewhere. Fix, fix that, too. That method right now is kind of like the gold standard. It always works. It's always doable. It's great for women. It's great for people with very curly hair. But for somebody with 
wavy or straight hair, we can shave the back very short, use a micro drill that's less than a millimeter in diameter, remove only the core components of the seed of the follicle, same thing, and then uh, there are no stitches. It heals by secondary intention and contraction, and it's like invisible, and there's no line in the back, and you can go as short as a size one razor, and you won't see that any hair was taken. And so I can take out about 2,500 to 4,000 follicles, and the average follicle has 2.3 hairs before you're going to see a visual decrease in density. So you're there for hours. Yeah, it's meticulous. Wow. Yeah, it takes about eight hours. My goodness. Okay. The patients, they've eaten breakfast, they're on Valium, and then they take another Valium, and they have a great day. I can't even imagine doing this. You know, I, I, I draw sometimes, and sometimes I get bored, yeah. and I get tired, and then you, your picture gets ruined. How do you stay motivated for eight hours? I mean, that's pretty intense. I, I have a passion to help my patients, and that's a commitment. And honestly, I like it. It's like some people would watch this and be like, I could never do this. It's incredibly tedious. And other, yeah. like myself, look at this, and I'm like, how good can we make it? Let's Let's crush it. Yeah. Are you able to harvest first and then come back the next day and, and plant it or it has to be all done within like a time frame? Uh, you can't do that. I've never done it though. It, it, I, okay. The patient does not want to sit through two days of this to be honest. Yeah, I can it, imagine. It's, uh, it's, it's, it can be done in one day beautifully. There's no reason to stretch it. Okay. And what about this PRP? To me, yeah. that seems like a great option if you can just inject something and then it starts growing. But what is that procedure? Right. So basically, I'm a gardener and I'm looking at the plot of land, which is the scalp and the hairs are the plants and the follicles are the seeds. And so if I'm looking at it and the big healthy plant has miniaturized, it's beginning to shrivel up, but it's alive. I don't need to go planting, I need fertilizer. That's where PRP comes in. If you don't have seeds to fertilize, it doesn't matter how much fertilizer you put on a barren land, you won't grow crops. So for somebody in the earlier stages of hair loss where they still have hair but it's changing, especially if it's shedding, PRP is very valuable. And for your listeners who don't know what this PRP thing we're talking about is, it's platelet-rich plasma, which really means growth factor-rich solution. And growth factors are used to grow blood and, or sorry, to grow hair. The growth factor comes from within the platelet, which is a cell that floats around in the blood. And so during an office visit, we'll draw the patient's blood, we'll centrifuge, we'll spin it down, which separates the components based on density. The platelets are the least dense, and the water of blood is plasma, and we'll take that out, we'll concentrate the growth factors from within the platelets by activating them, and what's nice is that these growth factors are your own. You're not going to reject your own growth factors, you won't get an allergy to yourself, you're not going to catch some weird virus, and you know, people have tried all sorts of wacky things to grow hair, I'm happy to have said, I, I don't think I've ever done anything like this, but... Um, one of the popular trends maybe three years ago was to put A-cell into people's hair. A-cell is an extracellular matrix that's derived from fetal pig bladder matrix. So they take a fetal pig's bladder, chop it up, and inject it into your head. And I kept joking that that's just not kosher. But uh, <laughs> That's a good joke, actually. I don't think it grows hair. There really aren't any studies showing it does. Every once in a while, your body recognizes the pig is foreign. And you can have this horrible inflammatory response and you can literally like pull your own hair out because it's falling out that easily. It's coming out in clumps oh. and it's, you're really getting the opposite effect. So the PRP is nice because I've never had a patient shed from doing it. 
everyone gets some degree of improvement. The question is, how much is it going to help you? Which leads me to my like next thought process on this, which is like, who gets helped by PRP? And the answer is, PRP is growth factor, so it's doing something on the inflammatory cascade. If you're a guy and you have purely hormonal hair loss, probably PRP is not the right treatment. But there's often a mix to it. There's women who also have androgenic alopecia, uh, who, if you biopsy their scalp, will have a microfolliculitis or an inflammation at the hair bulge. And those patients do great with PRP. Um, if you're interested in seeing real results, I have a website called HairCareMD, H-A-I-R-C-A-R-E-M-D.com. And there's an entire gallery on PRP results, a whole gallery on hair transplant results. And so you can get a sense of what's possible. So the PRP, you really have to pick your people a little more uh, thoroughly. I screen them very thoroughly. A lot of people have had blood work. I'm, I, you know, it's, you, we don't want to miss an underlying medical condition and just start treating something. And I have a, a hair microscope that helps me look at how the miniaturization is, look at the osteo, the little holes from which the hairs come up out of, and you can get a lot of valuable information. Now, are you having to inject like a thousand times every spot, or is it kind of a... So I'll numb the head and then do little injections and create a little bubble, or in medical terms, a bleb, and connect it until the area of thinning has been fully treated. And I'm injecting at the level of the follicle, which is something I know really well because I do a hair transplant and look at them almost every day. Yeah. Okay. So it's not just into the scalp. You, you okay. obviously it's not. I'm kind of messing with you. To injecting it like subgaleally. It's just in the wrong area. And the procedure takes about 30 minutes from walking in the door to walking out. People are back to work that day. I'm, I'm kind of re- trying to set it up so that like, people aren't just going to their orthopedic surgeon and saying, hey, can you do this in my head? So there's like eight systems to make PRP. And some of the systems concentrate the growth factors to very high levels. And other systems create a longer acting version where the growth factors are linked to fibrin, which is the body's natural glue. I have found that the long-acting PRP is way more effective because it's sticking around. Hair grows real slowly. So if you inject something and it's gone within 24 hours due to the vascularity of the scalp, even if it's at a high concentration, it's probably not going to meaningfully change anything. But if you inject something that's injected into like a glue and slowly leaching out and releasing these growth factors, it has more potential for an improvement. And um, the studies with my particular system show that it's improving over the first four months and as long as six months from one treatment. But just like any fertilizer, it's good for a season. It's not going to change the genetics or the ultimate code that's, you know, running the hair's biology for life. Is the PRP a more affordable option than the transplant route? Yes and no. The PRP is good for four to six months and you're doing it again. In Manhattan, it's going to cost you around $1,200 to $1,500 per treatment. And a transplant, you're looking at about fifteen to 20000 But let's say you're 25 years old and you're going to do a hair transplant. It's going to, again, last you your entire life. And it's a one-time thing. You don't have to do any maintenance. There's no pills. There's no effect on the body. And no matter what you do, those hairs are growing. Um, I've never had a hair transplant fail. It works every time. And if I move 100 hairs, it's like 95 to 97 will take. And so it's like every time I take the test, I get a 95 to 97 percent. It's not like I pass 97 percent of the tests and fail 3 percent of the tests. Does that make sense? Yeah. And like what you said was the way you set it up is your genes, you're going to lose more hair. Like it's going to happen. You're going to get thinner. It's going to more like horseshoe-ish. Right. But what I can do is set it up so now 
as you age and lose more hair, it's not going to look silly. Right. You're not going to have an 18 year old's hair and the rest of the hair. He's like, I got to spend another 20 grand because now I look ridiculous from behind. No. Yeah, exactly. So okay. my goal is if we do one of these, you could never do another one. You're going to look normal. That's pretty good. Yeah. Is your system pretty unique? Are there a lot of options out there? So the, the system for hair transplant is very unique. Um, there are systems out there. Some of them are quote unquote robots and some of them are smarter systems than other systems. None of this really makes a difference. It's all marketing. What matters is how the design is for the placement. Because if you can get the hair to grow, whether you take it out with a robot or by hand, it's irrelevant. What matters is how it's placed. It's kind of like, uh, you know, an artist saying that their stone is, you know, their, their chisel is better. My chisel is a more adept chisel. You don't care about that. You care about what they can do with it. So that's the biggest thing is if someone gets piques their interest, that's the one big thing that they need to look at is the before and the after. Because if you don't like the after results. It doesn't matter how good the technology is. Exactly. The results are everything for this as a, as a patient trying to figure out who to go to. Also, you want to make sure that you can talk with your doctor and they're going to listen to you and that this is someone that you can connect with because you're going to spend eight hours that day and then you have that result for life. So you, you better make sure that this is somebody who really understands your vision. How long before you look good? Because I can imagine you're going to be inflamed and it's going to look like you went through a procedure so for a little while. The back looks pretty good at, uh, at six days, seven days uh, with the FUE. With the strip, immediately it looks good because you have long hair covering the incision line. You'll never see it. Uh, from the front, there's little scabs that are red on day one and they turn to sort of a tan color on day three. And then they fall out sometime between day five and day 10. People are, let's say I do it on a Wednesday. They leave with a wrap on their head. The wrap comes off on Thursday. They're able to do work from home on Friday. And most people are back to work on Monday. Wow. It's not that much downtime. Okay. I was just always curious. You know, sometimes when you get like a surgery, your immediate friends will know that you had a surgery for a while. And then six months later, you're like, oh, I would have never known you had a procedure done. So in terms of never know you had it done, you have to wait for the scabs to fall off. So a safe, a safe 10 to 10 days, seven to 10 days. And then you just have these little hairs, but our hairs are always falling out and new hairs are always growing. And you'll just look like you have a shadow of these new hairs and it's sort of within your hair. So it's, it's not so hard to hide. And then it, you can wear a baseball cap as soon as the next day. So if we do it on a Wednesday, you're wearing a baseball cap on a Thursday and you can be like out to dinner. So it's, what? yeah. Hey, are there any tips or tricks? I heard, what's a rumor? If you wear a baseball hat a lot, you could go bald faster. I don't there, There's thoughts on vascularity and compromising and tension and constricting, but then everyone, you know, it's just, it's so inconsistent. Yeah. I think the best predictor is looking at your relatives. There you go. Okay. So no tips or tricks really to, to prevent the, the hair loss. Okay. Kinda, you are what you are. One tip and trick is that biotin, which is like the hair vitamin that's really promoted, doesn't seem to help with hair growth at all. There's like 30 clinical studies showing it doesn't do anything. Biotin is actually made by bacteria in our gut and likely you have an excess of it already. And there's a recent study that showed that biotin can interfere with certain lab detection, specifically troponin. And there was a guy who was taking a lot of biotin, had chest pain, went into the ER. They did the troponins. They came back normal. They sent him out and he died. Just sad because obviously this is a guy who's trying to take care of himself, went into the ER with the chest pain 
And he's also trying to care of himself with his hair with the biotin thing, but the biotin actually blocked that troponin lab value. So uh, it, it doesn't seem like, unless you're a biotin deficient person, which is incredibly rare, and you would know because you don't have eyebrows or eyelashes or any hair, and then biotin supplement would be incredibly helpful for you, you probably don't need to be taking it so you can save some money. There we go. Obviously, you must be marketing. You're doing a podcast. Yeah, sure. What type of marketing do you do? Because this can't be a... I'm assuming you have people from all over, possibly the world, but at least the United States flying in to do this no, procedure. I have people from all over the U.S., in Europe, Middle East, um, South America, Central America. So my feeling is that people are going to go to the person. It's like a meritocracy. The best results and the best experiences are going to help you um, get more patients. And the concept of word of mouth to me has been the single best tool to get more patients. And when I came to New York City after medical school at Northwestern, I, I did ENT at NYU, as I'd mentioned, and I was on a campaign to figure out who's the best plastic surgeon for face in Manhattan. And I got a list of about three names, and two of the guys were older, and one of the guys was younger. And anyone in my shoes would have tried to spend time with the older guy because they're going to retire and you can take over their practice and that would make a lot of sense. The problem for me was that when I saw the younger guy working, I was like, this aesthetic is unbelievable. I've never seen anyone do a facelift and that's Dr. David Rosenberg. And I was fortunate that my residency allowed me to spend time with him and we spent from 2009 till 2014 getting to know each other. When I was a fellow, he was part of the fellowship and then I spent time afterwards and joined his practice. And so in terms of marketing, there he is right there. Uh, in terms of marketing, uh, spending time with people who can help you get off on the right foot, who have excellent reputations has been very helpful. Dr. Rosenberg doesn't believe in online advertisement or spending money like that. For me, the, there's a website called realself.com. Uh, where patients can ask questions and doctors actually will respond to them. And it's a really interesting website. And so I have spent some time there, which uh, has been really helpful at answering people and getting my name and getting exposure. You know, doing a podcast like this, I started an Instagram account about a year ago, and that's gotten a pretty good following pretty quickly. And What's nice is I can show sort of the diversity of work, but I can also share a little of my personality. People can understand if they come to me what they're going to deal with. And because I did my training in New York, I met all of these doctors, none of which are doing what I'm doing, uh, back going back to the hair thing. So that's it's an, it's an easy relationship where they're happy to send to me and they're excited to see somebody that's like their child grow up and they're continuing to support. And they also... I got great advice when I was a resident. They said to me, Ben, you want to be the type of doctor that you would want to send to. So in every interaction, figure out, like, is this the type of person that you'd want to send to? And if you continuously treat people in the way that, you know, you want to be treated, then uh, you'll grow. You'll grow. And, uh, and that's a nice thing to take home. Well, I think people respect when between not only as a patient, but as the doctors, if you can always be the guy that you can turn to, you're going to get treated well, you're going to do a good job, and you're going to put the patient first. That, that's going to carry over real, real quick. The word's going to get out. I think out. so. I think also as a surgeon, knowing your limitations is really important. There are some things that you're going to finish your training, and you're just not ready to do. 
and there are other things that you're going to do beautifully. And you want to be available and you want to be affable, right? And you want to be accommodating, but it doesn't mean you have to do everything. Someone will respect you just as much for saying, you know what, this is above my level of comfort at this time. And that's okay. If someone was curious about uh, working with you, are they able to do any sort of online consultations where they can send photos of themselves so that they're like, look, I'll pay you for your consult, but if I don't have to fly to New York yeah. for you to look at me and say, I can't help you, sure. <laughs> is that? No, I do. I do Skype consults. I can look at photos. If it's something like that, you know, I, I, if we're doing significant work, I, I'm, uh, you know, there, there are fees, but I'll often just take a look at a photo and help give somebody direction. And if there's a local person who can do it better, you know, we try to take care of each patient the best way possible. Yeah. And I don't, I'm not a fan of uh, doing things for free a lot of times. Like there's got to be, <laughs> you could be overwhelmed with free cases sometimes. We, we always, for in-house, we always have a consult fee because it, it's, our, my time is valuable. My patient's time is valuable. I, you know, I went to medical school for four years, residency for five, another year of fellowship. I spent a lot of years in practice at the highest level in Manhattan. And for me to take my time and for you to take your time out of your busy life, we want to make this very meaningful. Absolutely. Have, did you find that in Manhattan there was a versus being uh, in New Jersey, the the look of the office, does that make a big difference to the patients when they come in? I, know, I think anywhere you go, you're looking at all of these subtle, un, un, you know, subconscious identifiers. So having a very clean office that's well run, where you know that every detail is being thought about, it makes it easier to move forward. Even in, you know, it's not a it's not a New York versus New Jersey thing or anything like that. But if you, if you go into an office and it seems like it's disorganized or unclean, that may be a reflection on the work you're about to receive. It's true. That's kind of an obvious answer. I was just curious because I know some some offices look, you're like, whoa, this is the nicest thing I've ever seen. And sometimes you go to an office and you're like, okay, it's just kind of white walls and oh, looks clean. Mine is as nice as any office you will ever see. It is a beautiful space. Yeah, I'm just looking at your room right here. I'm like, that's pretty nice. And it's probably nobody, 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 nobody sees, nobody this, sees room. this room. Yeah, here, I'll, I'll give you a tour. You can see the carpeting is actually really cool. I don't know if you can see it. Anyway. Yeah, I can. That's pretty yeah, wild. Well, so. It is nice. Doc, do you remember a time when you had a patient that really stands out where it felt like you, you changed their life and just made you think to yourself, this is why I spent so many years becoming a doctor? Yeah. You know, there are cases like this that come up from time to time where you get to take a step back and you might think of somebody who's obsessed with hair. It doesn't happen as often, but it actually happens quite often. I took care of somebody recently who had breast cancer and then the breast cancer came back and she lost all of her hair because she needed an aggressive chemotherapy and she was on Rogaine for many months afterwards and it didn't really do that much. We tried the PRP and it definitely helped but it didn't get her there and then we did a hair transplant for her because the hair in the back came back because that's the healthier hair and she got an incredible result. And she said she was going to these medical meetings and people were coming up to her and they go, I know we're not supposed to tell you at this, but you look amazing and you should walk around as, you know, and, and so she came back just big hug and it, it felt very 
wonderful to be able to give that to somebody and to know that that result's going to be with her for life. That's amazing. That does make you feel like you can go home at night just knowing yeah. this is what I do all day. Yeah. Wow. Dr. Paul, people these days have a morning routine, a lunch routine that gets them grounded and excited for the rest of the day. Do you have anything like that? Yeah, I have a, a lot of fun routines in my week and in my day that um, I think make it a little bit more fun. Um, so my office has two ORs. We operate every single day. And we have sort of a front staff where there are clinic rooms and an OR staff. And our entire OR staff eats breakfast together every morning. And um, currently, we're all doing like egg whites and a little bit of iced coffee because it's summer. And then the office has sort of this fun uh, every Wednesday, we go to this boot camp called Barry's Boot Camp as a team at 420 at uh, <laughs> 64th and 2nd in Manhattan, if anyone wants to join us. And uh, it's a treadmill workout class that's incredibly challenging. And then I'm part of a squash league that I like. It's like tennis inside a box for those who haven't seen it. Um, I played squash in college five days a week, was on the team, would travel. And so I've been able to keep that up, which is really good for my health and I think it's good for the mind too. Makes me think I need a YouTube because I'm thinking racket ball. Oh yeah, watch squash on YouTube. You'll be like, wow, that's an intense sport. Um, it's quick, it's right? It's quick, and when you watch it, you're like, how are you not getting hit all the time? But you just don't. It's like a dance. You know how to move, and the person you're playing with knows how to move when you're on a higher level with that. Big time. Yeah. And I see that you have glasses, so you got to wear protective gear. Always, always, always. I had a math teacher in high school who lost an eye playing this. He wasn't wearing protective goggles. Yeah, it's serious. Yeah, I got hit in glasses one time with a racquetball, and I was like, ooh, okay, lesson learned. I'm glad I didn't like yeah, uh, lucky lose an eye. But like, I was like, after that, I kind of I kind of backed off. Wow. <laughs> well, to wrap this thing up, favorite books, blogs, or podcasts that you secretly love and one that you think everybody should definitely take a look at? Oh, podcasts. I, I started listening to yours. Love it. And uh, I like This American Life. I like Radio Lab. Uh, Moth Project. I think those are probably the three that I listen to the most consistently. Um, and then that More Perfect by Radio Lab. Have you heard that one? Uh-uh. That might be the one to check out then. So it's basically they, they went through Supreme Court cases and tried to find people that were on part of the decision making for landmark cases and went through why they're important. Uh, it's a really good podcast. It's really well done. Oh. And what was that one called? One more time? More Perfect. More Perfect. Yeah. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, it makes Man. respect the strength that the Supreme Court has, at least on U.S. rules and, and outcomes. That could be why so many people are up in arms right now with all the, not to go political, but being that there's Obama did one and Trump possibly doing two. Right. So that's why people care so much whenever you start listening to these types of things. You're like, oh, this is the far-reaching consequences with the wrong person, yeah. potentially. Yeah, yeah. Ah. Any books? Let's see. I think the best book for somebody who is going to go off on their own is probably How to Win Friends and Influence People, which is like an old classic, that Dale Carnegie book. Um, uh, that would probably be my strongest recommendation for anyone to read. If they're going to read any single book that they haven't read it yet. It's worth it. Perfect, perfect. And how can people find you? I know you kind of dropped a couple of uh, websites here and there, but let's just go through those again. The easiest thing is Instagram. There's Dr. Ben Paul, D-R-B-E-N-P-A-U-L. My website is www.drbenpaul, Dr. Ben Paul. And then the website that I have just devoted to hair is uh, haircaremd, H-A-I-R-C-A-R-E-M-D.com. 
Very nice. Man, I'm pretty proud of you that you could actually get that URL with Dr. Ben Paul. Like that's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's like, pretty amazing. Yeah, I got that a long time ago, just sat on it. <laughs> that's smart. That's yeah. smart. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. And if, if there's anything we can do on our end, let us know. And I do hope that you'll get a few phone calls uh, from your time today. Yeah, that would be wonderful. Doors open. I'd like to tell you about a special deal we're doing right now. If you're listening to this months or years from right now, just contact me. Maybe we can still offer this for you. But what it is, the acupuncture no needle book. We're doing some bonuses for the same cost of the book. Not only do you get a one hour one-on-one coaching session, but I will actually throw in the probe and the ear seeds, which I already like to do. But the big thing is you're going to get the electric acupuncture pin for no extra cost. The electric acupuncture pin actually helps you find the acupuncture points that you need to stimulate. And because it's kind of like a muscle stem, but with a special tip, you're going to get far superior results. Definitely go to needlessacupuncture.net and check that out. Also, uh, the first book, Today's Choices, Tomorrow's Health. You know, we're talking tips from China. We're talking 10 plus years experience as a chiropractor, answering patients' questions day in and day out, blueprints that I personally use to lose weight, not eat so much, and also keep my finances in order. It's something that I'm passionate about. That's why I wrote the book. It's over 200 pages, 40-something chapters. Uh, Again, offering a bonus for this one as well, a one-on-one coaching call for one hour at no extra cost. We got t-shirts, some uh, different state pride, some chiropractic t-shirts. If you got any ideas, let me know. I can maybe design up something and make it available for everybody. Follow us on uh, social media because there are a lot of sales that go on with these shirts. Let you know if you write a review, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever, let me know. Send me an email and every month I can raffle off one prize. The prize is to be determined, but we can do that. Also, if you check underneath the resources page on doctorsperspective.net, you'll see all our affiliate links, which we get a little kickback for. And then, of course, on every show note page, we have Amazon links for the books that people have mentioned and any other types of products. So if you click that, Amazon pays us a little bit. As always, thank you so much for listening. You can buy the host a cup of coffee on the PayPal button on the website. And remember, listen, critically think about it, and implement it into your practice. We just went hashtag behind the curtain, and this episode has come to an end. I hope you got the right dose for your optimal life. Please spread the word about this podcast by telling two friends, sharing on social media, and visit the show notes on adoptorsperspective.net to see all the references from today's guest. A sincere thank you in advance. You've been listening to Dr. Justin Trosclair, giving you a doctor's perspective.